Well, throughout the uh, book of Galatians, Paul has been kind of making an argument that uh, really comes to fruition in the chapter we're going to be studying today. Uh, It starts all the way back in chapter 1, verse 10, when uh, Paul writes these uh, words that are going to be on the screen here. Uh, He says, "I am am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God, or am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so what he says here in in chapter one is that uh, to be a servant of Christ, uh, you have to be willing to please God and not man. All right. So there's this this opposite. We've kind of talked about over the last couple weeks uh, between one way of living and another way of living. So if we're going to serve God, uh, it means pleasing him. Uh, In in chapter two, verse 20, Paul will say, I is no longer I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who uh, loved me and gave himself up for me. And so what he says here is that that the life that he now lives, it's not lived for him, but rather it's lived uh, for Jesus. Uh, Then we get uh, what we read last week in chapter 5, verse 25, where he says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep step with the Spirit. And so if we were living according to the ways of the Spirit's guiding, we're going to follow the steps that he gives us. And so throughout this book, he's been kind of uh, arguing this point that there is a way that Christians should live. Right? And he's, he's kind of argued that there's ways that they shouldn't live. Right? There's not about checklists or, or anything like that, but there is a way that you should live. Uh, and he's going to talk about that more. The book of Galatians is, is a, really long, a, a really good book. I know that we didn't get a chance to read it all uh, within our sermon series, uh, and so you should go back sometime and read it. Uh, but basically what we've been talking about is this two ways of living. All right? The former way that we lived was defined by sin. Uh, it was defined by slavery. It was defined by bondage. And yet we have Jesus who's come, and he's broken those chains of slavery, and he's given us a new life that's all about freedom and the freedom to choose whom we're going to be slaves to, whether it's fleshly living or spiritual living, whether it's sin or God. And so those are all, all good things, but we get to this question of if we're choosing to live by God and his way of living, what does that look like? Right, how does that play out in our lives? What is the, what is the practical application to everything that Paul has been arguing uh, throughout this letter? And then luckily for us, he does give us application, and it comes in the form of chapter 6. So that's where we're going to be at today. If you uh, have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to chapter 6. We're going to be starting uh, in verses 1 and 2 of Galatians, all right? And and this is uh, how it reads. It says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Uh, But watch out yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, everything in this letter, I think, has been building up to these verses here, okay? When he talks about uh, fulfilling the law of Christ. And this is a very interesting phrase because of a number of different things. One is that throughout this letter, Paul has been arguing against Christians following the law in their lives. And, and, and here he's using the same terminology, the law, and he adds to it the law of Christ. And so he's presenting this different view. And, and when you read Galatians, it's, he doesn't really talk about what law he's really talking about throughout the book. 
What is it that the Christians aren't supposed to follow? Now, there's hints. Uh, he says the law was given 430 years after Abraham in chapter 3. Uh, in chapter 4, he talks about Sinai, Mount Sinai, where Moses was given the law to the Israelites. Uh, he quotes Deuteronomy a little bit later when he says that, you, uh, that, that, that the Israelites are supposed to follow the book of the law. All right, and so, so from those hints, we gather that the law that Christians are not supposed to be following is the law of Moses. And so the law of Moses is, is, and the law of Christ, these are two different things. Right, and it's this, this duality of life that we can choose from, right? You can choose to follow sin, to follow the flesh, the desires of the flesh, and you can choose to follow the law of Moses, and it leads you to bondage and slavery. And on the other hand, we have this law of Christ that as Christians, we should be following. Right, and here he says that we need to fulfill the law of Christ in our lives. And so that leaves us with a very important question, right? What is the law of Christ? Now, he's not going to tell us, okay, so, so I'm going to make some assumptions, and if you disagree with me, that's okay, all right, because we don't really know, all right, but here's what I think the law of Christ is. I think the law of Christ is, is two things. The first thing is, it's living like Jesus lived, and, and, and that, we have that. We have Jesus' teachings, at least the essence of it. We have the essence of Jesus' life. It's found in the four gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right, and so from that, we can kind of gather and get a picture of how Jesus lived his life. The other thing that I think the law of Christ is, is one particular teaching of Jesus. Uh, throughout his ministry, Jesus had at least two points in his ministry where he was asked by people, what do I need to do? Right, if, if, if I had to do one thing out of the entirety of the Bible, what is that one thing that I need to do? And Jesus gave them two answers. He said, you need to love God with all that you are, and you need to love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so I think what the law of Christ, it, it's basically boiling down uh, to, to these two things, living like Jesus lived and loving like Jesus loved. And that seems simple, right? right? That's an easy enough concept for us to grasp, but when we go to our lives and we try to, to fulfill that in our lives, it can be difficult. It's like hitting a home run. How many people can tell you how to hit a home run? There's a lot of people in this world, right? Armchair analysis, they look at it and they say, oh yeah, he's not getting enough bat swing on that. Oh yeah, he's, he doesn't have his hands right. I mean, we can tell you what it takes to hit a home run. And then you ask this question, how many of those people that can tell you how to hit a home run have actually hit a home run in their lives? Not many, yes, that's right. I, it's very few, right? I, especially in the big leagues, how many of those people have hit a home run like, like that are in the arm seat chair, right? I, and so, so that's kind of what this is like. Yes, we know that we should live like Jesus and that we should love like Jesus, but how many of us do it? The, the, the good thing is, is while, while I personally cannot hit a home run, and, and, and probably a lot of us in this room can't hit a home run, I'm not all of us, I'm sure there's some, okay? All right, but, but while we can't hit home runs, we can do this. We have the ability, we have the power, we have the capability to live like Jesus lived and to love like Jesus loved. If we were to boil down the essence of Christianity, 
And I think that's what Paul's doing throughout this letter. He's boiling down the essence of Christianity. He's saying the essence of Christianity isn't a checklist. It isn't doing all these things that the law of Moses said you had to do. The essence of Christianity is living and loving like Jesus. And if we can do those two things, we can change the world. So how do we live and how do we love like Jesus? Well, Paul gives us some ways in this chapter. The first way that he gives us is how we handle sinners in the midst of our church. He talks about at the beginning, he says, if you catch someone who's in sin, restore them gently. And if we want to live in love like Jesus, then when we, when we meet sinners, when we have sinners within our church, all right, we have to gently restore them. Uh, there's a couple of things in this, in this phrasing that's used. The first is this word caught, okay? A lot of times when we think of caught, we think of like the lasso guy, right? The, the cowboy that lassos the calf and he's caught him, right? All right? And, and that's kind of our mentality of what we're talking about when we're talking about catching sinners. But when we look at the Greek here, that's not what Paul's talking about. What Paul's talking about is not laying a trap for someone and jumping out and saying, aha, I caught you, okay? What he's talking about is you walk into the room and, oh, I caught you. There's a difference in mentality, right? I mean, as Christians, as the church as a whole, we, we've gotten this really wrong in a lot of ways. All right? We like to look and see, oh, do you see what that guy's doing? Oh, that's even worse. And we have this mentality of looking for sinners rather than stumbling across it. In the uh, Middle Ages, there was a, a guy who was living in Italy and going to church, and, and he had a lot of political rivals who went to the same church, and they were all Catholic. So, so if you've ever been to a Catholic service, you know that there's kneeling and there's standing and there's sitting and there's kneeling and standing. And you do all these things throughout the service, okay? All right, and so they were in the service together, and this guy... Uh, that was uh, going to church there. He was praying, and he was kneeling, and everyone else was standing. And the political rivals said, Aha, we got him. And so they grabbed him, and they took him to the bishop and said, Hey, bishop, he didn't stand up when everybody else was standing. He was impious. You need to excommunicate him. The man responded to his rivals by saying this. He said, Well, actually... I was praying, and I was so deep in prayer, talking to God and, 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 and having some issues that I needed to pray out with him, that I just, I forgot everything else around me. And while everybody else was standing, I was still praying to God, and I'm sorry that I didn't stand up at the right time. And then he turned on his rivals, and he said, if you guys were so pious, how is it that you noticed I wasn't standing? I mean, why were you so focused on me rather than on the reason we were here in the first place? And that's the problem, is, is as Christians in the church, as a universal church, we tend to do this. Where we're so focused on everybody else that we forget that, that we have a role to play as well. That the reason we're here is for God and not for anything else. Right, and so, so that's what this idea of catching is. It's, it's not laying the trap, it's, it's I come across. Now, notice, when we come across sin in the lives of Christians, we don't ignore it. Right? It, it's different, okay? It's not me laying a trap and saying, you're a bad Christian, you're a bad Christian, you're a bad Christian. No, it's, it's me stumbling across your sin and saying, man, there needs to be something that's done to this. And you deal with it. You don't ignore it, you deal with it. Because sin is nasty. 
Sin devastates families. Sin devastates lives. And we don't want anyone to be caught in sin, to be trapped by sin in the, in the bondage that sin leaves us in. We need to get them out. Now, the sin that's talked about here is, is also very interesting. There's, there's attitudes of sin. You know that, right? There's different ways we can view sin. And the type of sin that's being talked about here is it's kind of like the hiker who's going off on a hike and, and one thing leads to another and he's no longer on the trail. It's not that he purposely went off the trail. It's just that that stuff happened and suddenly he's not on the trail anymore. That, that's a different type of attitude from someone who goes on the hike is like, well, there's the trail. I'm going to go this way. There's difference. And the type of sin that these Christians are falling into, it's the type that they don't realize that that's where they're heading until they're too far gone. All right, and so those are the types of sins. There's a difference. It's about attitude. What is my attitude on sin? And so how do we handle these people? How do we handle people that when we've caught them in sin, what do we do? And Paul's answer to that is you gently restore them. And, and, and for many years, the church has, has messed this up in a lot of ways. Now, honestly, the reason why I think that a lot of people just aren't coming in the doors anymore is because the church has done a terrible job of gently restoring sinners. Instead, we, we say, well, you're no longer welcomed here. Or we don't like these type of people. Or that's a terrible thing, and, and we, we are harsh, and we're critical, and we're berating them, rather than trying to bring them into a restored relationship. But if we live and love like Jesus, we need to look at how Jesus handled sinners. And we see that Jesus ate with them, and Jesus lived among them. When we look at some of the vilest sinners that were brought to him, the, the woman caught in adultery, he didn't stone her but he mended the relationship that had been broken. And as Christians, that's how we need to treat fellow Christians first, is by mending the broken relationships, because that's what sin does. It breaks relationships with us, and it breaks relationships with God. And if Jesus came, I mean, God sent Jesus for a reason, right? And that reason was to seek and to save the lost. Right? God didn't look at sinners say, you know what, too bad, so long, see you later. God said, no, I love you so much that I'm going to restore this relationship. And if God is in the business of restoring sinners to him, then the church needs to be in the business of restoring sinners. That is what it means to live and to love like Jesus. We see sin, we deal with sin, we don't ignore sin, but we do it gently and we try to bring people back to Jesus. We don't drive him away from God. So if we want to have the essence of Christianity, if we want to live and love like Jesus, then we begin by gently restoring sinners to God. Uh, he continues in this, in this passage, he says this, starting in uh, verse 3, I believe. It says, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions, then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one of us should carry our own load. Now, uh, what's, what's, what's very interesting about us as human beings is we like to compare ourselves to other people, right? And sometimes this is, is bad, right? We, we look at the mom, all right, and we see that she's a super mom, and we compare ourselves, and we ask the question, am I as good of a mom as she is? 
Or maybe we see the marriage that looks spectacular and they're holding hands and they're still in love and they've been married for 20 years and we think to ourselves, man, is my marriage that good? Or maybe we look at the job that's just super fantastic and, and, and that person that's working and it's like doing awesome. I do this a lot. There's a lot of preachers about my age that, that are having better, like, better growth or they look like their church is, is just taking off and I wonder to myself, man, am I as good of a preacher as he is? I mean, we, we compare ourselves in this way a lot of times. But the problem is, is that especially in our social media world, we put forward our best face, don't we? We take that selfie. Oh, that wasn't a good selfie. Let me get it from this angle. That's my better side anyways. And that's the picture we put out in the world. And when we try to compare ourselves to the best picture ever, it's not really reality. We don't see that mom that's breaking down in the middle of the night yelling at our kids. We don't see that marriage that behind closed doors there's arguing and they're on the bridge of divorce. We don't see the stress that that job is placing on that person's life. So, so comparing ourselves in one way is very bad because it makes us look bad, it makes us feel bad, it makes us not worthy. On the other side, we can also compare ourselves and we can look at people who are having a terrible time at life and we can think to ourselves, man, I got it good. Man, I'm not messed up as they are. I'm awesome. And we can start to compare ourselves and think that we are better than what we actually are. And so Paul says, don't do that. Don't compare yourselves to Joe or to Jane. The person that you need to compare yourself to is Jesus. You need to compare yourselves to the life of, the, the, are you living and loving like Jesus is living and loving? We need to humbly examine ourselves compared to Jesus and ask, are we doing what we need to do? Are we fulfilling the law of Christ in our lives? And the great thing about doing that is we have a standard, okay? And that standard isn't the people that we see on a daily basis. It's who Jesus is and what he has done and how he lived. And that is a high standard. But as Christians, that is the standard we need to attain to. And so we can look at our lives and we can ask the question, man, I just treated this person in this way. Is that how Jesus would have treated them? And if the answer is no, then we don't just say, oh, well. We say, okay, next time I will do better. Man, I just said these words and, and they weren't really as loving as Jesus said. Okay, next time I talk to that person, I'm going to do better. I'm going to love and live like Jesus loved and lived. Interesting thing at the end of this verse, he says each one of us needs to carry our own load. And if we look back just a couple of verses earlier, he said that everyone needs to carry each other's burdens. And, and it seems very contradictory, right? Carry everybody's burdens, carry your own load. What is going on? I think this is what's going on. In the Greek, the, the words are a little bit different, but that doesn't matter as much. It's kind of like a burden and a load in English, which what's the difference? Not a whole lot, is it? But I think the, what he's talking about is the difference. And in one subject matter, he's talking about sin. And I think the reason why we need to gently restore people out of sin is because a lot of times sin is a shackle. Sin is a burden that, that one person can't lift. Okay, if, if you're thinking about a box in a store, right, it's a box that says team lift on it. 
One person can't do it. It takes a team. And a lot of people that get caught in sin, they're in this sin, and they cannot break free. They don't have the power. They don't have the ability. And so it takes the church coming alongside them and saying, we got you. We're going to help you. And so when it says carry each other's burden, it's this, I understand this idea that we are going to get through this together so that you can have this restored relationship. The other subject matter is, is how we are living our lives. Are we living and loving like Jesus? And this idea of carrying your own load, it's, it's not the team lift box, rather it's a soldier's pack that a soldier puts on as he's going off to war. And it's a pack that he alone must carry. And too many times in the church, when we compare ourselves to other people, we begin to think, man, I don't need to do this. And we take off that load, and we force someone else to carry it for us. We each have a job in the kingdom. God has gifted you with the ability to do something to further his kingdom's cause. And if you choose to think that you're better than everybody else in the kingdom and you take that load off, then it hurts the kingdom. It hurts the cause of Christ. And so instead, you need to pick that up and go. If you're not dead, God is not done with you. You have a task. And Paul is encouraging the Galatians here. He's encouraging us here to continue that task. Don't think more highly of yourself than what you actually are. Instead, compare yourself to Jesus. And if you will humbly examine your lives to Jesus, you will fulfill this idea of living and loving like Jesus because you'll become more and more like him. Uh, the last thing I wanted us to read, we're going to skip a couple of verses. We're going to go to verses uh, 9 through 10. And this is what he says. He says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have an opportunity, let us, each, each, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So the last thing of, of how we can live and love like Jesus is all about doing good to other people. When we look at Galatians, it's, it's very interesting. I think it's just two different types of life, right? The life that's dis defined by sin, the life that's defined by trying to live by the law. And Paul constantly over and over again says, you do not do works of the law to find salvation. But it wasn't that Paul was against good works. Right, throughout all of his letters, he talks about doing good works. And here's another one. Do good to all people. What he was against was the works of the law of Moses. Don't, that doesn't do anything for you. But you need to do good. He says, do not grow weary. Don't stop for no good reason. I mean, doing good sometimes is hard. And it sometimes becomes tiring, especially when people aren't thankful, especially when people take advantage. I, it is hard to continue to do good things when, when there are a lot of people in the world that do that. But Paul says, don't grow weary. Don't stop doing good. 
And when we look at the life of Jesus, we see that he never stopped. There are many times in his ministry, at least three or four, where he will say something that is very difficult. He'll tell the people, you have to do this if you're going to follow me. And everybody leaves him. And the only people that are left are his disciples. And Jesus, after those events, what does he do? He continues to do good. He continues to minister to the helpless. He continues to do miracles to the sick. He never gives up. And even as he goes to the cross, he has people that are hurling insults at him. He has the disciples who have scattered away from him. And yet Jesus still continues to go forward. And so Paul tells us, do not stop doing good. As far as there's an opportunity for us, continue to do good. The opportunities are not always there. And the reason why we need to continue to do good is because there are going to be times where that opportunity no longer exists. Sometimes we, we as, as people, as human beings, we're like, well, you know what? The next time I will help that person or the next time I'll stop and fix that car. Next time I will, I will do this. But the reality is, is that next time is not guaranteed. The next time you're going to help that family, maybe that family has moved to a different state. Next time you're going to help that person, maybe that person has passed away. And if we keep waiting for the next time, then that opportunity more than likely will not be there. And so as we have opportunities, as we have divine appointments, we need to do good. And Paul says, do good, especially to each other, to fellow Christians. If we want to show the world that we love them, it begins by showing the world that we love each other. If we tell the world we love them, but we're hating each other and we're fighting and we're biting and devouring each other, that doesn't give a good message to everybody else, does it? If I see this family and they say, oh yeah, we love you, and, and they don't really like each other, makes me wonder what they, their definition of love is. And so as Christians, we need to love the world, and we need to do good to the world, but we also need to start here. Loving each other. Doing good for each other. And by doing that, then when we speak these words, we love you to the world. They'll understand what we mean. The essence of Christianity, what it means to be a Christian, is living and loving like Jesus. And while not a checklist, the ways that we can show that we are living and loving like Jesus that Paul gives us are very simple. We handle sinners gently and we try to restore them. We, we, we examine ourselves and we decide, am I living and loving like Jesus? And we become more and more in the image of the Son. It's, it's, it's doing these good works, these good things to other people. And as we do these things and as we become more and more like Jesus, people will begin to mistake us for Him. And that's the ultimate goal. Paul said that if we are in Christ, we, if we are Christians, that we are in Christ. 
And we want people to look at us and not see Tony and not see whoever we are, but to see Jesus. And ultimately, I want to stand before, Jesus, before God and God to look at me and say, you know what, you look like my son. That's what I want in my life. That's what I want when I stand before my creator. And I do that by living like Jesus lived and by loving like Jesus loved. Will you pray with me? Dear God, help us when it's difficult to live and love like Jesus. It's one thing to know that this is what we're to do. It's another thing to actually practice it in life. But when it's difficult, help us to stay strong. Help us to be mistaken for Jesus because of how we live. Help us to examine our lives, not to everyone else, but to you. Help us, Father, to be the lights that are reflections of you. Help us to, to live and fulfill the law of Christ in our lives. I ask this in your name. Amen.